1: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk.
2: Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Today, we'll look at lithium and take a broad view of high-purity graphite. There's a gold company operating in Quebec with potential bonanza grades and more. I encourage you to do your own research before making any investment decision. We are paid by our sponsors to present these companies to you for your consideration. There is risk involved. Our client companies encourage you to contact them with all of your questions. They stand ready to answer them to the best of their capability. As always... I thank you for listening. Let's begin the program. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation at the Prospector and Developers Association of Canada in Toronto with Steve Roebuck, the president and CEO of Enforcer Gold Corp, trading under the symbol V-E-I-N, that's Bain, on the TSX Venture Exchange. Enforcer Gold Corp. is engaged in mineral exploration in northern Quebec and holds a significant land position over the underexplored Montalembert gold in shear VEIN property. Steve, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you very much. Ellis, give us an overview of your company if you don't mind. Uh, the name is Enforcer Gold Corporation and our ticker symbol is VEIN, V-E-I-N. We just did a little bit of a name change. Enforcer Gold was a strong name and very memorable. VEIN really reflects the high-grade nature of our gold project.
2: Fantastic. Now, speaking of high grades, I've had a chance to look at some of the material. I've actually seen a couple of rocks that you pulled out of one of the veins. Why don't you share that with our audience?
3: There's a channel sample, and of course channel sampling is difficult to do, and to find 438 grams gold over one meter was spectacular. So we were very happy to see that type of result. This was topped by another sample on that same vein structure. I went about 20 meters, 75 feet to the north. I spotted a little bit of visible gold, and I brought my hammer and my chisel to work. started going after what what I thought might be an interesting piece. It turned out to be a little bit more than that. It's actually a real trophy piece. We haven't been able to assay it because it's so spectacular, almost museum quality. So, yeah, it is a high-grade gold project at this point.
2: Now, you have quite an extensive background in the business, in the resource sector,
3: and you were sitting on the sidelines waiting for a project like this before you came on board. That's correct. A project like this comes once in a career, and I think that karma found me in many ways, and I've been one of these guys that always try to do it right be a true person. And finding this project was a bit of good luck. My background is gold mining, gold exploration. I've worked for BHP Billiton. I've worked for Scorpio, Gold Corporation, Placer Dome, Ore Resources, a number of high-profile companies. So my background as a geologist has suited me well, mining, exploration, and most recently for the last 10 years involved in the junior sector. So finding a project like this is, it just suits my skill sets and what I want to do, what I want to accomplish in the years ahead. Now,
2: tell us what the next step is. I have held the rocks in my hand. They're quite impressive. And really, when you see Bonanza grades on paper, you hear about it. It's almost too good to be true. And then you hold the rocks in your hand. You get excited about it. I'm excited about it because I held the rocks in my hand.
3: So what's the next step? Begin the exploration. We took the project on in October of 2016. We released those channel samples, which were fantastic numbers. Now it's time to get to work. And it really starts in the next two weeks. We're going to be doing airborne mag survey. So it's a large project. It's 15 kilometers strike length by 5 kilometers, 7,500 hectares in size, or about 18,000 square acres. So it's a big project. So we're going to be flying an airborne mag survey, and that's going to give us a lot of information in terms of the geology, and more importantly, the structure that controls the mineralization. So it begins in the next two weeks. We're really looking forward to getting that going. And that's going to generate a number of targets for us, uh, above and beyond what we already know to exist on the property site. Being such a big project, I think we've got a target-rich environment. So We'll see that. That's the next step for us. How are you funded for that exploration? If you don't mind me asking. That rock that uh, you saw. I mean, that did a lot of talking for me. When you have a museum specimen like that, we were able to raise four million dollars. If you remember the night that Mr. Trump was elected, gold was going up, and I went to bed thinking, "Oh, this is going to be this is going to be easy." Well, I woke up the next morning and gold had fallen off the cliff, and so we had to put our shoulders to the stone. And over the next six weeks, up until December the 21st, we were out bringing all rocky for the roadshow throwing it to people and people really just got behind and got excited so we raised four million dollars 2.2 in flow through and 1.8 in in hard dollars Talk about the share structure. What does that look like? It's excellent. The company only has 40 million shares outstanding in basic right now. We've got 11.8 million warrants at $0.30, 1.8 million options at $0.20. So that gives us fully diluted fifty three million. If you're looking at what our market cap is, we trade at roughly about $0.20. So we're looking at about an $8 million market cap, half of that which is actually cash in hand right now. Tell us about the history of the project. The project was first prospected in the late 1940s by a company called N.A. Timmons, and they ended up doing a drill campaign in 1950. They drilled 30 holes, about 10,000 feet. What ended up happening is that from that program, the engineer who did the work, he only sampled 24 out of the 30 holes. And of the six holes that he sampled, he only took 10 samples. It's really a head-scratcher as to why so much work was done and so little information was garnered from it. I was reading one of his logs hole 16. In fact, it was five and a half meters of mineralized material and he didn't take one sample in it. So I'm not too sure what exactly was going on at that time, but that gives me an opportunity. The quality of the logs is there and they're good and I'm using them for interpretation of where the veins are because I do know where the collars are. So I've been able to ascertain what I see at surface on the veins and extrapolate down using his drill logs. So I'm getting a very good understanding of what the actual project looks like and what he saw in 1950. Based on that, I said, okay that's some good information. Let's now fast forward. That's 67 years ago by the way. So that drill core doesn't exist. There's no real information I can fall back on at that point in time. Fast forward now to 1973. A company called Roshlom Mines got involved in the project and as opposed to drilling it, they made the decision, and I think it was a good decision, to do a bulk sample. So that means going straight up the vein. They actually came up with excellent information. There's a, a report that's behind that. Although it's again old and I can't really rely upon it, it does indicate that, once again, there is high-grade material. So, putting out the disclaimer that this is non-43-101 compliant, select so grabs from that bulk sample, roughly I best about 60 or 70 of them, 405 feet of strike length, average 0.93 ounces per ton. It's a shocker. I mean, that's just like, wow. Is That's the last time this project was looked at until 2015. No one looked at the goal potential of this project. So, people are seeing, coming up to me all the time, and they're asking me, how was this missed? I don't have an answer for that, other than the fact that it was missed. The project evolved over time through the 70s, more into the 80s, into the 90s, as a base metal project. Work was done, but they were looking for copper, they were looking for nickel. Work was done, and I actually have some of those drill logs, and in one case, four kilometers to the north of where we are currently actively going to be looking this year. This drill hole intersected 20 meters. A hydrothermal breccia. Maybe your readers don't understand the significance of that, but it is very significant. Noted within that is visible gold. This is four kilometers away to the north. I think that opens up a brand new target for exploration in 2017. Somewhere between the last kick at the can was in 2002. This was the commodity of the day. If you remember, it was diamond exploration. This project was a diamond project. After that, it basically fell off the map. We've been told that the project was swept up in a consult consolidation by a major Canadian gold mining company. The idea is that that they did not know what they actually had. Those claims then came, they reverted back to the crown when no work was done because that's just what happens. The credits run out. They went back to the crown and it was staked in 2015. And the project was brought to my attention in 2016. The company that was involved in the, the staking of 2015 is called Globex Mining. They are a very well known and respected project generator. The principal, Jack Stock, approached the company. They said, I've got a good project. Are you guys interested? And that's when he showed me his sample. That was the eye popper. And that got my attention and, and brought me up to the project for my site inspection. So there's kind of the project history. I think right now, Alice said, I've got a blank sheet. I've got a huge project that's got incredible potential on gold and base metals, but specifically for us on gold at this point in time, there's no work actually that I can rely upon for 4311 purposes, but it's given me a great indication of the potential of the project and you've seen the samples yourself and they are you know, without a doubt eye poppers and it certainly caught the attention of the majors in the area. There are a number of major companies and here at the PDAC people coming by the booth and stopping and seeing the rock and the expletives coming out of their mouths are just like uh, shocking but that includes some of the majors. Names that every one of your listeners are familiar with are coming in and they're saying would it be possible to do a site visit it during the summer. And I'm saying, of course, bring your checkbook. Where do you think you're headed going into the summer, Steve? The summer exploration program, I've already mentioned the geophysics. That's going to really lay the, the foundation. By mid-May, the snow will have lifted. The ground would have dried off somewhat. We're going to get back in there. We're going to continue to strip the veins. This is all exposed at surface. We are not drilling two, three 300, 400 meters to try to find this. This is at surface material. Clearly unique. I'm going to be coming in probably in June to July with a drill rig. I'm going to be drilling this with large diameter holes. And this is what you need to do when you've got nuggety gold like this. You need as large a sample size as you can. How big is that sample size? Typically about 90 millimeters across. Maybe five and a half, six inches diameter. And if you've seen a typical drill core it maybe it's usually about 2 inches in diameter. So this is really significantly larger. And what you're trying to do there is to capture as much material as you can for a sample. And another important thing to talk about is what sampling technique that we're going to use. Previous Operators have used just fire assay techniques, and that's good and that is an industry standard. But when you've got nuggety gold and you've got this coarseness, the better technique is to use metallic sieve. It costs a little bit more, but you absolutely get a better result. I'm taking a look at all the work that the previous operators have done, seeing what their mistakes have been, and how I can improve, and how Forcer Gold can really make a go of this project and really bring it home for our shareholders. We've got the money in the bank already. We've got a great project in hand. I'm working diligently with our First Nation neighbors. That is going extremely well. All these things combined, well, three strong legs gives me a, a platform to build from. I'm in a really good position. I'm super happy that gods have chosen me to head up this company in 2017. Looks like the market's turned around. We're set to go. Light the fuse.
2: When are we going to see the kind of results that will go into a 43101? Everything that you've said sounds amazing. I've seen the rock. The
3: stock's at cents without a compliant resource. When are we going to see that? You mentioned 4311 and interestingly, there's an initial it's called your your maiden 4311 and really what it is is just a a review of historical work and this will give your listeners you know, the ability to go on to Cedar and check on Enforcer Gold and download that file themselves and do their own due diligence and see what work has been done. And I always encourage people to make sure that they do that. So that's going to be going on to Cedar within the next few weeks. That is complete. Now now to answer your question as where we're going with this that would be at the end of a season 1 drill campaign in which I've got all the surface results from more channel sampling drilling RC drilling large diameter drilling all this material will come together and that gives us our first pass resource possibly I'm not planning a resource right now it's just almost just too far out there talk to me again in 3 to 6 months and I'll give your listeners an update and I'll tell you guys how the program's going and do I I have enough information that I can pull together a resource, and or if I'm really doing well, could it be a reserve? I don't know. It'll be small to begin with, because this is just the beginning of this journey. In years to go, we can update and we'll get something more significant. And, but right now, I think that we've got a 43 coming out. The update will be coming out at the end of the drill campaign.
2: Steve Roebuck, president of Enforcer Gold, trading as VEIN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program here at PDAC.
3: Thank you very much for having me, Ellis. Always a pleasure.
2: I've been visiting with Steve Roebuck, the president and CEO of Enforcer Gold Corp., trading as VEIN on the TSX Venture Exchange. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Did you hear
1: something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Once again, here's Ellis
2: Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Patrick Highsmith, the CEO of Pure Energy Minerals. Pure Energy trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Pure Energy Minerals is an emerging leader in the development of innovative, resource-efficient mineral exploration and project development, notably with lithium. The company is focused on its 9,500-acre flagship lithium brine project located in Clayton Valley, Nevada. Lithium is used in a wide assortment of mobile devices, hybrid electric vehicles, and power storage. Pure Energy Minerals announced last year that the company had entered into an agreement with Tesla Motors for the potential supply of lithium hydroxide that they intend on producing from Clayton Valley, not far from the Tesla Gigafactory. Patrick, welcome back to the program.
4: Thank you, Ellis. It's good to be here.
2: If you wouldn't mind, please give our audience a brief overview of the company.
4: Sure. Pure Energy Minerals is one of the more advanced explorers and developers of lithium resources in North America. We have our flagship Clayton Valley South project, which has sizable inferred resource of lithium and brines, and it adjoins North America's only lithium producer, the venerable Silver Peak Mine in Nevada. And we've just added a exciting new exploration project in the center of the lithium triangle in South America. America, the Terracotta Project in northern Argentina.
2: You've had a successful lithium brine pumping test, which is really crucial moving forward in Clayton Valley, Nevada.
4: You know, Ellis, 2017 is a year of shifting gears for us at Pure Energy a little bit. Our activities at Clayton Valley will be more focused on development and engineering, for instance, as opposed to exploration this year. And the pumping tests that we conduct on the Clayton Valley South Project are, in fact, they're sort of like little test mines, if you will. So, We've just completed pumping our CV7 and CV8 wells in recent days and weeks. And when we do that, we pump those wells fairly aggressively to stress that aquifer, understand the hydrological properties, how it's going to yield brine, at what rate, what the effects are drawing down the water levels in the aquifer. And these are important tests that have to be done as we estimate the future performance of production wells that might be built. If we're successful there as we work through our preliminary economic assessment coming up and, of course, our feasibility study we hope to follow. And all that, of course, lays an important foundation for what another lithium brine mine in Clayton Valley, Nevada, just might look like.
2: Let's talk about team building, which is shifting for 2017, and what you see going forward.
4: Realizing that we've got these development activities in Clayton Valley, with which we'll have to coordinate a number of contractors and additional test work and engineering studies, and at the same time, launch an exploration program on our new terracotta project. We are making some shifts in the team, and we brought new Vice President on board, Walter Weinig, has joined us, and Walter has almost 30 years experience. He is a hydrogeologist by training, and he has a long track record in that, but he's also a certified professional project manager. And that's one of those guys, you know the type, Ellis. They have Gantt charts and timelines and to-do lists. And frankly, we need that sort of organization and focus on deliverables. And we're really happy that Walter has joined the team. He's really hit the ground running. He and I work very closely together. And he's helping us complete our plans for delivering our preliminary economic assessment in just a few weeks now. And also, of course, putting the budget and work plan together for the first steps on the terracotta project, which are already underway. So great to have the team shifting a little bit to look more like a development company and not so much focus on exploration, certainly in Nevada.
2: How are you managing two projects in different parts of the world like this?
4: A lot of people say that a junior company can't run two projects in different parts of the world, Ellis, and in my experience, that's not true. You've got to play to the strengths of your team. I, of course, worked in Argentina, the same province in Argentina, the Salta province, before when I was the CEO of Lithium One between 2009 and 2012. So to some degree, going back to Argentina, we see some of the same team members emerge and want to get together and work together again. Also in Nevada, got well-established infrastructure and the team has been working together there for a while now. The key to this is local expertise and local management. And when you're working in South America, you're going to have lead Argentine scientists and contractors. And in Nevada, we got the team we've been working with, Matt Vital, our hydrogeologist and project manager in the field, now reporting to Walter. And I find that the organization's working sort of seamlessly, actually, reporting up to Walter. And you keep these teams small in a junior company, to be sure, but you rely on contractors who are focused, not only in the geography in which you're working. But the stage of the project, the commodity type, of course, in this case, lithium. And so far, we've been very pleased with our ability to keep the overhead low and outsource to contractors where necessary. And then management flows up to a project manager, previously, of course, Andy Robinson, who worked with us for a couple of years. And now, in this case, Walter, as we shift gears and go forward. So far, the team's really pulling together and I think drawing on strengths and familiarity and guys who've worked together before is also a big help.
2: Tell us if you wouldn't mind why your company could be the the only serious exploration and development company in the Clayton Valley.
4: Well, our focus at Pure Energy has been doing real work, and, and right from the beginning, we looked to innovate a little bit. Even before I joined the company, Robert and his team realized that to go forward in Clayton Valley, we needed to be thinking about a new technology for producing lithium, more sustainable, more efficient. And so we immediately went down a path that set us apart there, and then we built a team again to address the technical challenges of a new technology and, of course, operating in Nevada and familiarity there. I like to think that you put a strong technical team in the field, and then you have the management sitting over the top of them that realizes what the important milestones are and drives for those milestones. It's true that uh, not every one of these lithium projects is going to turn into a mine, so you want to look at a management team that's focused on the major milestones, has been there before, and is executing with real work. You know, Every hole we drill, every sample we take, every geophysical survey we do, we're learning a lot. And I'm looking forward in 2017 to building the sort of basin models that will allow us to understand Clayton Valley. And it's complicated geology out there, but we'll be the best at understanding Clayton Valley going forward. And I think that gives us an advantage not just in Clayton Valley, but where we do continuing lithium exploration in other jurisdictions, even in Argentina. There's a lot of similarities there. So technical team focused on the milestones doing real work and keeping the overhead disciplined and focused.
2: How close are you to potentially fulfilling an offtake agreement with Tesla Motors down the road?
4: We still in the lithium industry are faced with, you know, sort of different takes on supply and demand fundamentals. Some people of course are speaking about a supply glut. I think that's very unlikely because I think that only a small minority of projects will actually go forward. So I don't think we have a threat of a supply glut. We see strong supply demand fundamentals, strong price projections, and we'll be reporting on some of those by the way. In our upcoming PEA. We'll have a professional market survey report there that will deliver our comments and outlook on pricing. So that's important. We're still, though, talking about a commodity that does not trade on any commodities exchange. There's no spot price for it. And so a relationship with customers is critical. We continue our dialogue on a regular basis with Tesla. It's very often very technical and has been very helpful to us. And of course, we reach out and we meet other potential buyers of lithium and off-takers. So we're constantly building those relationships. And each day we advance the projects in Clayton Valley and Terracotta. now in Argentina. We're taking another step closer to advancing the projects closer and closer to production. So we believe that as we work through the preliminary economic assessment due out in a few weeks, that will give everybody a view of the potential scale of development of that project that will accelerate the discussions with potential off-takers. So that's our objective, Ellis, is to put those parameters out there, the scale of the project, the likely capital costs to build it, operating expenses to produce lithium, and that will facilitate those discussions and make them be able to advance a lot more focused on the objective. Typically, when you're at this stage of a project, moving from PEA to feasibility in the mining industry, we can expect production to go ahead quite rapidly from there in a the two to four-year time range. In most cases, when you're in a jurisdiction that's seasoned and permitting and things like that. So we think the dawn of a new lithium mine in North America isn't very far away, and we just have to keep attacking these Milestone and delivering uh, at the project level. Patrick,
2: it's always good to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program.
4: Thank you, Ellis. It's always good to be here. I've
2: been speaking with Patrick Highsmith, CEO of Pure Energy Minerals, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as PE.V and in the U.S. as PEMIF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast,
1: you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk.
2: Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Robert Boaz, the CEO and president of Oris. Silver, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as AUU, and in the U.S. as AUSVF. Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, give us an overview of Aura Silver. Aura Silver has two
5: major properties, one in Nunavut, Canada, and one in Oaxaca State, Mexico. The positive thing with the Nunavut property is that Ignico Eagle Mines, who have their own mine just north of us, is earning into the Nunavut property, so they're providing all the capital for drilling and geochem and geophysics. In Mexico, we do have high-grade silver. We have a small resource and a small gold resource that we need a partner to come in and do some
2: Well, let's talk about Nanavut, the Greyhound Project, where you have sample gratings, from what I understand, of over 300 grams per ton. That is very significant. Sample gratings over
5: 300 grams per ton and surface rocks that have over an ounce gold in multiple occasions, which is unheard of for it. I haven't seen any samples that high. And that's why Ignico Eagle is so
2: interested in it. So you're talking about sampling of about 5,000 grams per ton silver with multiple one ounce per ton gold samples. That's correct. And they seem to be separate
5: deposits. The gold is on one side of, or a lake which is within Greyhound. And the silver seems to be concentrated just south of Ore Lake, also on Greyhound.
2: So let's do a supposition at the moment, if you will. Let's speculate. What happens if Agnico Eagle finds what they're looking for, potentially? What they will do
5: is they'll complete their earn-in, which should be this spring, and that's 51%. Then they will be committed to an additional $5 million further exploration, further drilling, with the objective of trying to uh, establish a mine.
2: That sounds fantastic, but wait, there's more. There's Tabichi in Osaka, Mexico. Let's talk about that. Well,
5: in Teviche, there's a couple of things. When people think about Mexico, they think that there's a criminal element there. There's disruptions, community disruptions. We're in uh, Oaxaca State, which is the south end of Mexico. The bad guys aren't there. We have great community relations, and anytime we go back for drilling, we'll be accepted. It's very mining friendly. In Oaxaca, in Teviche, we had multiple silver samples. We had grades over wide intervals of over 300 grams silver. We have a gold vein that stretches for seven kilometers is low in grade in terms of 0.5 grams to two grams at depth, but it's something that can be mineable as well. So eventually it would count as silver gold equivalent, wouldn't it? Yes, basically yes.
2: So what's the plan for the company, let's say 12 months out and even two years out?
5: Well, 12 months out, if, if we are successful in none of it with Agnico's drilling and our share price is at a reasonable level, we'll likely be looking for other properties. We do have other properties that are under our radar, but we will need more capital at the end of the day to do that. How are you capitalized now? We have 143 million shares, outstanding. We're currently trading at $0.06, so it's reasonably cheap at this stage, especially if Agnico is successful.
2: And cash on the bank?
5: We just raised 500000 We expect 110000 as an option payment from Agnico
2: at the end of May. But your exploration and development costs aren't really super significant right now based on the fact that Agnico Eco has an earn-in plan with regard to Nanavut. That's correct. So
5: any cash we have in the bank right now will be conserved as much as we can, and we won't explore anything, even Teviche, unless we have at least a million and a half to $2 million in the bank.
2: What other attributes are there for your Greyhound project in Nanavut? One thing is Agnico Eagle, which is one of the premier
5: gold companies in the world, for that matter. The other is where their Metabank mine is, is a road that extends down to the community of Baker Lake, which is during the spring and summer months, is an inland port. That road goes right through our property. So in terms of infrastructure, for Ignico to get to our property, they can just drive down the road and the drill targets are right there.
2: I've been speaking with Robert Boas, the CEO and president of Aura Silver, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as AUU and in the U.S. as AUSVF. High quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World Magazine, published six times a year, Resource Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Tyler Dinwoody, the vice president of Alabama Graphite Corp., trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG and in the U.S. as CSPGF. With an advanced flake graphite project in the U.S. state of Alabama, Alabama Graphite intends on being a reliable, long-term supplier of specialty, high-purity graphite products. Tyler, welcome to the program.
6: Thank you for having me, Ellis.
2: If you wouldn't mind, give us an overview of the company.
6: Certainly. Alabama Graphite Corp. is a graphite development and technology company whose sole focus is on the production of battery-ready anode graphite, specifically coated spherical purified graphite or cspg
2: now what's the difference between coated spherical purified graphic or cspg and the conventional graphite concentrate which is basically the core business model of all graphite development companies in the world
6: Excellent question, and that is the fundamental difference between Alabama Graphite and all others in the graphite development space. Every other graphite development company advancing its projects around the world, their core business model, based on their feasibility studies or their preliminary economic assessments, is based on the primary processing of graphite concentrate. And when you think of graphite in the traditional sense, if you will, in the industrial sense, whether it be for the steel industry vis-a-vis crucible and refractory linings or industrial greases and lubricants or brake linings for the automotive or transportation industry. That is your conventional flake graphite concentrate. Technology-grade graphite, if you will, or graphite that is specifically engineered for use in lithium-ion batteries, in particular the anode of a lithium-ion battery, is an entirely different type of graphite. And what do we mean by that? Well, we take the primary processed concentrate, the material, like I say, is the core business model of all the graphite companies, but this is just when the work begins, if you will. So we take that graphite and we, what is referred to as secondary processing, we secondary process that primary material. And what does that mean? Well, we take the graphite and we purify it to battery grade. So we purify it to what's known as 395 or 99.95% carbon purity or higher. That is the minimum required for battery-grade graphite. And from there, we proceed to micronize it, which is sizing the material to the specific micron size, of the battery end user. Usually between 10 and 25 microns is the desired specifications. And then once we size the material, we spheronize it. So we take the flat, jagged flakes, if you will, the conventional graphite, and we spheronize it so we create the spheroidal shapes. So the flat flakes become sort of a rounded potato-like shape, if you will. And then from that point, once we have the spheroidal flakes or material, we then surface treat it to enhance its conductivity. So once you go through those myriad of processing steps known as secondary processing, you have your finished battery-ready graphite. And also, I think, to speak to, the, to your question, the difference from the primary process material versus the secondary process material is that the primary process, sort of traditional concentrate, is regarded as an unfinished material, an industrial mineral, if you will, whereas the secondary processed graphite is a finished product, a battery-ready finished product that's ready to be deployed in the anode of a lithium-ion battery.
2: If the secondary delivery process is preferred, then why aren't all of the other companies doing that?
6: you <laughs> Specifically, experience, expertise, know-how, and also it's very, very expensive. And with most companies focused on the primary processing aspects of their business, to take up upon to achieve the secondary processing requires an awful lot of capital. And capital is, is quite precious, as you well know nowadays. I mean, we're in the most hostile capital markets uh, since the Great Depression. So the notion that you'll be able to fund your 100 to $200 million project or your CapEx associated with your primary processing and then do the requisite technical reports, your PEA or subsequent feasibility study specifically on the secondary because remember, one cannot speak to the technical feasibility or the economic viability of a secondary processing, whether it be CSPG for batteries or whether it be ultra high purity flake or any other high value secondary processed graphite products in the absence of a full technical report. Once you're able to finance those significant associated capex, for those primary process concentrate, you would have to fund the efforts to complete a technical report for the secondary. So to answer your question a long-winded way, it's time and money, and both are precious commodities in short supply nowadays. Also, in fairness, Don Baxter, our CEO, who has, quite frankly, the most operational experience in graphite mining and processing of any CEO in the graphite space, I think, as they say, hindsight is 2020, And Don has been in the business for decades. And when he joined Alabama Graphite, it really presented the first opportunity for Don Baxter and his technical team to do things right from the onset, So instead of Mr. Baxter coming into the graphite company that he was previously president of, but he wasn't the CEO, he came into a company where he basically had to optimize the business model. You know, the die had already been cast. It was sort of irrevocable, the plan of the business. It was going to be a primary processed graphite concentrate producer that was predicated on producing tens upon tens of thousands of tons. Of concentrate every year. So Mr. Baxter's job there was to essentially optimize it and maximize the economics associated with the project and the efficiencies with the project. But as I say, hindsight being 2020, Don was able to see that the project wasn't only not economic in today's graphite industry, but that it's also not feasible, quite frankly. And we're not castigating that company in particular, as we are basically the entire graphite industry. We believe fundamentally that the business model for the conve- Conventional graphite development company is fundamentally flawed. And what we mean by that is is that their business model is essentially broken. Their business models are predicated on the production of tens of thousands of tons, whether it be 20, 40, 50,000 plus tons per annum of the primary process material. And that, as we alluded to in the beginning of this interview, is not the same as the battery ready or the secondary process specialty graphite. They're significantly different. One is an unfinished industrial mineral quite frankly, an oversupply with depressed pricing globally, while the other, the secondary processed battery-ready material, is in relatively short supply by comparison with significant demand moving forward and a very high margin historically inelastically priced material. So they couldn't be more diametrically opposed in terms of value and in terms of supply.
2: So based on what you're saying, none of the other companies can effectively go into production.
6: In our opinion, Yes. And don't take our word for it necessarily. Look at the broader space. How many graphite development companies are having their capexes financed? The answer is really none, aside from ASX-listed Sierra resources in Mozambique. And secondly, how many actually have binding off-take agreements? And I mean an offtake agreement in the conventional long-term supply agreement paradigm. How many have take-or-pay components or downstroke payments or how many of these off-take agreements can actually finance the capital expenditures of the project? And the answer is really none. Sierra Resources, which is a significant project out of Mozambique, is positioned to address the rest of world supply in terms of the primary processed concentrate. So further underscoring our thesis that there's really no need at all for any additional capacity in the primary processing industry between China and Sierra Resources' capabilities, there really is no additional need in the short to medium term for any new Entrance to come online. The only way we believe that one is going to survive, let alone thrive, in the graphite industry is to divert 100% of your primary production, if you will, to the secondary processing, to your specialty graphite products, whether that be the coated spherical purified graphite for lithium-ion batteries, whether that be ultra-high purity flake, whether that be expanded graphite, and other conductivity enhancement materials. But the only way for a graphite development company to actually Make it in this business, let alone have you know a chance for enduring success, is to divert everything. Basically, value add all production.
2: How is Alabama Graphite positioned for this offtake need?
6: We're working extensively to build up the company and advance it in this unique business structure. In the sense that we do intend to mine our flagship forty-two thousand acre. Cusa graphite project located in central Alabama. We intend to mine our graphitic material there and process it on site, actually at the COOSA graphite project. Then we will truck our primary process material 19 miles south of our flagship COOSA project to Rockford, Alabama, where we would have access to a natural gas line. And that would be the home of our secondary processing plant where we'd actually manufacture our coated spherical purified graphite. We're meeting regularly with local and state level government officials. We've recently met with U.S. Senior Senator Richard Shelby, but we've also been in touch with Senator Luther Strange, the successor to Senator Jeff Sessions, who is now the Attorney General of the United States. We also meet regularly with our Congressman, U.S. Representative Gary Palmer of Alabama's 6th District, where our acoustic graphite project is located. And we are meeting regularly and communicating regularly with our potential end users, which are mostly U.S. Department of Defense battery manufacturers. Although we're dealing with many potential end users that are not related to the United States Department of Defense, our primary focus is actually on those entities that are United States DOD battery manufacturers or contractors because those entities have been tasked with sourcing American whenever possible. And that perhaps is one of the biggest points of differentiation or unique selling propositions of Alabama graphite. Of course, once we're in production, our material, would be made in America. I believe that's a given. But one of the biggest or most formidable competitive advantages that we have is that our material would also be sourced in America. And those sourcing claims that we could afford potential end users would be of great significance. Because as I said, made in America is one thing, and that's a given. But made in America can be largely semantic in the sense that you can take Graffiti ore from Russia or North Korea, bring it to America, primary process it, and then subsequently secondary process it, and one has, legally speaking, 100% made-in-America material. There's no doubt about it. But when it comes to sourcing claims, there's a lot less ambiguity there. Something is or it isn't. And it's those sourcing benefits that we could potentially offer those U.S. DOD battery manufacturers that is of particular interest to those that we're engaged with.
2: According to Elon Musk, Tyler, the lithium-ion battery should really be called the nickel graphite battery. What did he mean by that?
6: Well, I think what he means is that there's been significant interest in lithium since Q4 2015. And a lot of that interest, not just from the retail investment community, but also institutionally, from the analysts and even the media, has been, I think, really due to the name of the technology, the lithium-ion battery. Now, if this were a food per the United States labeling requirements, you can only name a food based on the primary ingredients. For example, you can't call pork with beans, you have to call the product beans with pork. Well, if a lithium-ion battery were held to the same sort of conventions, it would actually have to be called, as Musk so aptly pointed out, a nickel graphite battery. And that's what he was alluding to in the summer of 2016, that that should be what Tesla's cells are referred to in terms of the actual composition of the cell. The critical materials in the battery is graphite. Graphite and nickel are the actual really critical input materials in terms of quantities. When you're talking about lithium, lithium, of course, is another critical input material, but it's relatively de minimis by amount. And Musk even alluded to this as well, that, you know, there's basically a peppering of lithium in the actual battery compared to graphite. There's 10 times more graphite, or actually CSPG, in the lithium-ion battery than there is lithium.
2: Then why isn't the graphite story, and specifically the Alabama graphite story, as big or not bigger than any of the lithium companies, some of which I cover on this program.
6: An excellent question. And it really comes down to awareness. Graphite has had a much more challenging time as a space being heard and, more importantly, being understood compared to lithium and, I think, what you're going to find next, cobalt for example. And the reason being is quite simple. It's a complicated story. You can't really rattle off battery-ready graphite and the difference between conventional graphite and the specialty processed battery-ready graphite in an elevator pitch or a 30-second summation. It's a much more complicated story, whereas lithium is far more straightforward or even cobalt, for example, the recently labeled conflict mineral, is, is far easier to understand. And the reason that I say graphite is difficult to understand is because of this. When you talk about graphite, the primary processed concentrate, alluded to earlier in the interview, it's presently in oversupply with depressed pricing. And because it's in oversupply with depressed pricing, that is in by no means a commentary on the secondary processed battery-ready graphite. And what I mean by that is that the CSPG or the battery anode graphite is in short supply with historically inelastic pricing. It doesn't deviate seasonally. It doesn't deviate from manufacturer to manufacturer. It holds, as I say, it's a very high margin an expensive premium product because of those that procure battery-ready graphite, either the battery cell manufacturers or the battery manufacturers themselves, they're not nearly as concerned about price for the battery-ready graphite as they are concerned with its electrochemical performance, number one. Number one, I mean, it has to perform as good or better than synthetic graphite. Number two, that electrochemical performance must be consistent. You can't have variations or deviations in one's electrochemical performance of their battery-ready graphite from, say, batch to batch. So once you've established that you have a high-performing material that's consistent in your production, the next question is, can you produce it in commercial quantities? Can you produce it in the requisite significant quantities required by a prospective battery manufacturer or end user? And if you can, can you provide it with just time delivery. Because remember, the prospective battery end user is not looking to refine or further process the material. They're ready to deploy it in the manufacturer. So whether it's their lithium, their cobalt, their graphite, their manganese, aluminum, or whatever critical input materials required in the battery supply chain, said battery manufacturer wants those materials in a just-in-time fashion. So they have to be, as we say, battery ready. And I think Back to your point, is, is that the reason that graphite is largely misunderstood is because of the core business model of all other graphite companies, the misconception that graphite is graphite is graphite. If you have graphite in your name, or you're aspiring to become a graphite producer, surely you could address Tesla's needs, right? I mean, it's graphite is what's required in the battery. And the answer is absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth. One is an unrefined, finished industrial mineral. The other is a secondary processed, finished, battery-ready technology products. So they're entirely different. And I think that that significant misunderstanding is largely responsible for the public's, and I don't just mean the public at large, but analysts, institutional investors, retail investors, and the media for that matter, misunderstanding of the broader graphite industry and really what's required for the green energy or lithium-ion battery supply chain.
2: So how far away is Alabama Graphite from being online as a deliverer of battery-ready graphite for an off-take customer potentially such as Tesla? or any of the other car makers.
6: Exactly. And I think it's important to note that a lot of these car manufacturers, like Tesla that you alluded to, aren't really car manufacturers. We regard them as battery manufacturers, or they're transitioning to battery manufacturers with automotive divisions or transportation divisions. We look at Tesla basically as a battery company that makes automobiles. But to answer your question, we hold the potential to be in production in Q2 2018 the second quarter of next year, contingent upon financing. We are about to raise capital to fund the company to project financing. There are some outstanding milestones that we must complete. For example, we have to complete our feasibility study on the KUSA graphite project. Again, it's unique because the feasibility will be predicated exclusively on the production of the secondary processed graphite. With our feasibility study, we must complete our second pilot plant. We've already completed our first with our PEA, but we must complete our second pilot plant, which is to demonstrate the commercial capacity of the secondary processing to produce it could graphite. And we will also complete all of our environmental and mine permitting concurrently. The great thing about Alabama graphite is those milestones that we have yet to complete can all be commenced concurrently. Nothing is consecutive here. So all of our outstanding milestones we can actually complete within one year of commencement. Once we complete our feasibility and the other outstanding milestones, we'll be at the project financing stage. And the great thing there is, is that build out to actually go into production will be less than six months. So as we say, contingent upon our ability to raise capital, we could be in commercial production as early as Q2 2018. Well,
2: that's just about a year away.
6: What I wanted to point out, though, is I think it's important to understand that our strategic business model to target only the technology grade of a specialty, secondary processed graphite, is one aspect of the company. The second thing to understand about Alabama graphite is is that the way Don Baxter built it out was quite strategic. We were never intending to address the industry with a, an unsellable targeted amount of production. The way Don had planned it was that we were only ever going to produce for the first number of years, only 5 thousand metric tons per annum of the secondary processed graphite. So what that means is is that what we're intending to produce, quite frankly, can easily be placed in the industry without disrupting prices or significantly disrupting supply. So it's a very cogent, linear strategy in an effort to actually go into production. Whereas almost all companies are predicated on tens upon tens of thousands of tons of this primary processed material, which quite frankly is unsellable quantities at totally incredible prices. I mean, completely unrealistic economic modeling. But with the battery-ready graphite, I think it's important to understand that although the margins and the selling prices are rather robust, a new entrant has to be very conservative in its targeted or stated production in so much as that you have to demonstrate to your potential end users or those that will engage with you that you can actually produce this material, you can produce it consistently, and it's all end user based. I mean, there's no spot market for this material. Forging and nurturing those relationships with your end users is absolutely critical. And it's very naive, I think, to think that any new entrant can come online and supply tens upon tens of, thousands of tons of the battery-ready graphite. It's simply not realistic. And I think with what we're doing at Alabama, is incredibly pragmatic, very prudent, and very realistic to address the needs of the American lithium-ion battery industry without, as I said, disrupting supply or prices.
2: What do you estimate the mine life would be of the project in Alabama?
6: Per our preliminary economic assessment, it was based on a 27-year life of mine, which is interesting to note because our land package in Coosa County for the Cusa Graphite Project is immense. It's a 42,000-acre package, and our resource grid, which was the basis of the PEA, is a very obviously small footprint, sort of in the middle of the package, if you will. The interesting thing is, is that per our PEA, the resource only uses 10% of the defined resource over the 27-year life. But I think it's important to note that we're only using 10% of our resource based on our PEA. So we have a significant amount of graphite. The other thing I wanted to touch upon, if I could, Ellis, is is that 42,000 acre land package that is the CUSA graphite project is on private land. There's no federal land permitting issues here. There's no Bureau of Land Management issues. We're only dealing with the state of Alabama. We're dealing with ADEM, the Alabama Department of Environmental Management, in terms of permitting for environmental and mine permitting. It's really quite fantastic in the sense that, unfortunately, Alabama is a very poor state. Coosa County, where our project is based, is actually the second poorest county in a very poor state. So the support we've received from Alabama, whether it be from the most local levels of government all the way to Governor Bentley's office and with the federal senators, has been, quite frankly, overwhelming. They have really been championing the project, and and I think the answer is relatively obvious. If you look at our preliminary economic assessments, you can see over the 27-year life of mine, the taxes for federal and state are quite significant. It's based on over a half billion dollars in taxation revenue at the federal and state level. So in terms of state support, we couldn't be more encouraged by the level of interest and by the level of support we've received. But also this advantage of being on private land is significant. I think it's a very formidable competitive advantage for us because we're only looking at about a six to eight month permitting process, which we can commence concurrently with the feasibility study. So as I said, contingent upon financing, we could be at the project financing stage 12 months from commencement of feasibility with permits in hand. Us being on private land, I don't think can be underscored enough in terms of how significant we believe that is.
2: Let's talk about the share structure of the company.
6: Presently, Alabama Graphite has 136.4 million shares issued and outstanding, 171.8 million shares fully diluted.
2: What is the real opportunity here, Tyler? If you're saying that graphite is in oversupply, then what evidence do you have that battery-ready graphite is in short supply? If that is true, what are the market dynamics moving forward? What are the demand drivers?
6: The rapidly expanding global lithium-ion battery market, but in particular, the U.S. lithium-ion battery industry does not have a U.S.-based supplier of specialty battery-ready graphite. As we know, battery-ready graphite is a critical component of the anode, but there's significant enduring demand for the battery-ready graphite. It was 100,000 tons per annum in 2016, but forecasted to grow to 400,000 tons in 2020 per benchmark mineral intelligence. That's a significant increase in demand just over four years. Currently, 100% of battery-ready graphite is controlled by China. So security of domestic supply is a key issue for the United States, in particular the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy. And the only other material that can be used in a lithium-ion battery anode is synthetic graphite. However, synthetic graphite has quite a significant environmental or CO2 footprint and does not perform as well as natural graphite in lithium-ion batteries and is considerably far more expensive. But it's very interesting when you talk about synthetic. Synthetic and natural graphite, last year, the market in 2016, the market for battery-ready graphite was actually 105,000 tons globally. Of that, approximately two-thirds was natural-sourced graphite, and the remaining one-third was synthetic graphite. But synthetic graphite, which is presently used in Panasonic batteries, which means this is what's used in a Tesla Model S, for example, is not at all aligned with green energy. And what do I mean by that? Well, you can't have a green car like a Tesla with a dirty battery. And what I mean is that synthetic graphite is actually a byproduct of the petroleum industry. Synthetic graphite is derived of petroleum coke. So if you go to an oil refinery, and I don't just mean any oil refinery, but the Cadillac of oil refinery, sort of the light sweet crude, you would drain an oil tank and jackhammer out the petroleum coke at the bottom of it, that sludge, and you would take it to your graphitization facility for synthetic graphite. You'd load up approximately a ton of this petroleum coke in a graphitization furnace, lock it up, set it at 2,600 degrees, and cook it for three months, basically 11 weeks, at 2,600 degrees. No wonder it costs approximately $20,000 a ton. It is a very, very pure graphite and works very well as the anode material in a lithium ion battery. However, it's not sustainable as we see it. And we believe that sophisticated consumers are going to be holding battery manufacturers and technology companies like Apple or like Tesla accountable, not only for where they source their materials that go into their batteries, but how those materials are processed. And we believe that synthetic graphite really doesn't have a role in green energy, in particular in lithium ion batteries.
2: It seems like we've just sort of shamed everyone else here, Tyler. I mean, why would anyone invest in any of these other graphite companies?
6: That's the truth of the matter. I swear to you, Alice, I say this with complete honesty. I mean, I mean this from a lot of my heart is what I'm trying to say is, is that these other CEOs of graphite companies that are going out raising investment or pitching, how do they look in themselves in the mirrors at night and, and really believe that they're ever going to go into production? Do you really believe the world needs 50,000 tons of concentrate into an oversupplied global market? Even if you could go this and let's say hypothetically they can't. What do you think that would do to prices? It would absolutely destroy them and they're basically at an all time low as far as the battery industry is concerned. I mean the flake prices have never been lower. And conversely the battery ready materials it's holding inelastic. There's zero deviation. It's basically between seven to $12,000 a ton. There's no seasonal deviation. There's no supplier deviation. It's sort of like a spot price, even though there's no spot market for it. It's really interesting, and I hope that people understand the value proposition that we bring.
2: Tyler, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program.
6: Thank you very much, Ellis. It's been a pleasure.
2: I've been speaking with Tyler Dinwoody, the vice president of Alabama Graphite Corp, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange as CSPG and in the U.S. as CSPGF. Listen to the segment Again, on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Who
1: are the small companies with big opportunities? Find an assortment of potential investment opportunities. ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.